On episode 164 of What Should I Read Next, Anne Bogle recommended Montana 1948 by Larry Watson as a buddy read for us. Its strong sense of place, small-town drama, and sparse but powerful prose appealed to both of our tastes. The story is about a 12-year-old boy and his family, and how the summer of 1948 changes and unravels them all. Welcome to He Read, She Read, the podcast where a couple of married bookworms discuss what they're reading and learning. Today we're discussing Montana 1948 by Larry Watson. I'm Curtis. And I'm Chelsea. Before we launch into our discussion, we want to remind you that we have three Libro FM memberships to give away. In order to win three months of free audiobooks, please take a minute to write a review on Apple Podcasts, not just clicking a star rating, but actually typing a few words in the review box and help more bookworms find our show. We're so grateful for those reviews, and we'd really like to hit 100 reviews by our one-year podcast anniversary in October. We currently have 65, so we need you and perhaps your friend to go to Apple Podcasts and write a review. We'll draw the winners and announce them on the show in October. Thank you for supporting the show with your reviews. Before we start our discussion, listeners should be aware that this book discussion will cover topics like sexual assault, racism, and suicide. Take care of yourselves and skip this episode if you need to. Chelsea, do you want to kick off with your initial thoughts? Sure. Um, Well, do you want to talk a little bit about the what should I read next aspect of this book? This was recommended to us by Ann Bogle. And I think on that episode, both of us were surprised because we had never heard of this book before. Never heard of it at all. Whereas the other two were a little bit more familiar. So... Do you feel like after reading it, you understood why she chose it for both of us? I don't know. To me, it was the wild card of the three and still is. Like, there are parts of it that I liked. This was the one that seemed l- the least like me because, you know, it's less than 200 pages. It's with a child narrator. Not really in my wheelhouse. So... I see why it would be more something that you would enjoy as far as like the prose and some of the analytical discussions about it and it's like place in literature. Um, But the post-World War II period isn't really something that I was huge into. Um, So I get it a little bit, but not, again, I don't think this one was for me specifically. How about you? I can see that. Um, I think maybe where it intersects with our taste is it reads like a memoir. Mm -hmm. It's not one, but it kind of reads that way. It's got a strong story, which I think we both like, and a strong sense of place, which I think we both like. So it's definitely more on the literary fiction side, which is more, like you said, more in my wheelhouse. But I think those were the things that stood out to me because it reminded me of some of our other buddy reads like The River, Bluebird, Bluebird, just like the river in terms of the the way that it was written and some of the themes and then bluebird bluebird with sort of the atmospheric small town environment so it reminded me of some of the other things that we've read but i do think it's definitely branching out for you agreed so it was a little i wouldn't say a struggle um but it was i had to find those things that i liked about it so the small town descriptions the brother and family dynamics and back and forth um but overall 
not my favorite, but mm-hmm. I'm interested to hear what you thought about it, and I've got some takes on it too. Yeah, I think that makes for a more interesting discussion when we have more of a mixed review. Mm-hmm. So I really liked it, and I think I'm going to be thinking about it for a long time. It's going to be in the back of my mind. I have the same feelings about it as I do for To Kill a Mockingbird. There are a lot of parallels that I see here, and I'll talk about that a little bit more as we go with our discussion. Um, My favorite things about it were that it was short. I liked that this was, I mean, you could read it in one sitting. I think I split it up into two sittings, but you can read it in just a couple of hours. Sparse prose, meaning it's not super flowery descriptions. The sentences are kind of short. It's very to the point, but it's incredibly descriptive. And I liked that it was a tense and tight family story. Some of the things I didn't love, um, the limited perspective does very little to highlight the incredibly real, very much still present racial issues in the book, which I wouldn't expect it to because Larry Watson is a white man writing the story from a young 12-year-old white boy's perspective on some really huge, heavy issues. Um, That's kind of where it aligns with To Kill a Mockingbird in my mind. Um, But I'll talk more about that later. What about your general thoughts? Well, when I saw your notes, I had similar feelings uh, with the To Kill a Mockingbird angle where you have this young narrator dealing with a pretty heavy subject matter and the relationship that goes back and forth with there. Um, So I can see the kind of linkage between what Larry Watson is doing to address some of those had like more heavy issues from a child's perspective, but then I feel like it doesn't give the adequate weight to those topics because um, it's just coming from this perspective of a 12-year-old white kid. Um, well, he is writing as he's writing as an adult, but looking back at that time in his life. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I liked the small town, Midwest location descriptions and the vibes that that brought out. And like I said, the family dynamics are the character study that I was into and really enjoyed. So for a book that's less than 200 pages, it did a good job of really emplacing you into this struggle of how this family operates and the drama that unfolds. So that that I liked. Mm-hmm. I also, I guess I liked that it reads, there were very few characters. It's almost like this would make a really good play. stage play. There we yeah. go. Yep where you could have a few actors, a lot of the action takes place off stage, so to speak. And so you would have a lot of really good like dialogue. Um, I think this would make a really good stage play. Let's get into talking about the characters. That's where we usually start with these discussions. I, I felt, and I think this was purposeful, I felt like I was watching from the outside. I didn't feel connected to any of the characters. No, and I don't feel like we're meant to. No. Especially because it's the device of an older author recalling information from when they were young because they're only going to have that focused, straw-like viewpoint on things. So we're getting a very one-sided description of, of all these characters but and not enough detail on any of them or conversations with any of them to really build that relationship. 
so let's talk maybe about the relationships between the characters because that's what stands out more than the characters themselves is their relationships to each other. So we have David Hayden, who's the author and narrator of this story that we're weaving. Um, And in 1948, he's 12 years old. His dad, Wesley, is the small town sheriff for Mercer County. And his mom is Gail. Also in the Hayden clan are Frank, who is Wesley's brother, kind of the golden child of the family, who's the town doctor, war hero. yeah. Yeah. Um, And then his wife, Gloria. And then we also get... um, Grandpa. Yeah, their grandparents. So David's grandpa used to be the sheriff. And then um, when he retired, he basically let Wesley take over for him to keep it in the family business. But... Frank is the golden boy preferred child, um, the war hero and daddy's favorite. Um, and that's the kind of dynamic that plays out. I honestly got some, I know you were asking if I had any book comparisons. I didn't mm-hmm. really, but I had like a movie comparison to like Legends of the Fall where like Brad Pitt is the dashing war hero, post-World War One guy. And then his brother is kind of this stick in the mud, not the golden one, not the preferred by his father. So that kind of, those those vibes I'm familiar with, where there's a preferred brother and another one that's kind of on the sidelines, but vying for attention and trying to do a good job. So I feel like that's the role that Wesley fills. And it's very much a tale as old as time in terms of like brotherhood, competition, and sort of that like competitive relationship. It's certainly not the first that I've read about it. But it was interesting, especially as the plot plays out, how Wesley and his role as sheriff, his relationship with his brother really changes, but at the core, it seems like he still loves him. So we learn very early on that Frank has been taking advantage of his position in the town as physician to molest and rape young Sioux women and girls. Um, I don't know necessarily if he went on to the reservation to practice medicine or if it was just a lot of the Sioux women and men were working in this small town. I think it was both. Um, But it comes out that he has been sexually assaulting the population in town that has the absolute least amount of power. Right. And something that I found interesting was Marie who is a Sioux woman and works for David's family as housekeeper. But later he finds out, (laughs) I thought that part was kind of funny. He realizes, oh, like she's a housekeeper, but she's also here to like watch me. Right. (laughs) And she's babysitting me all the time. Um, So she's kind of a nanny, kind of a housekeeper. Um, But she gets really sick and ill and they call Frank to the house. And Marie absolutely, she, she shrieks no She screams that she doesn't want to see him because she's heard the stories from her community. And what I found fascinating and something that I thought Larry Watson did a really good job of was David's mother, Gail, believes her immediately. Mm -hmm. She doesn't flinch. Even though Frank is her brother-in-law, she believes Marie right away. Um, And that's obviously something that we see Often today in the Me Too movement is we're seeing more women support each other right away, believe each other's stories. But for 1948, that seemed really revolutionary to me. Part of that made me think 
that maybe she had her own suspicions about Frank. She could have heard something. Or being around him for years and something Mm -hmm. that David might not have seen. And that's part of the unreliable or, you know, less than fully reliable narrator because it's coming from a child's perspective. But, like, something that comes up later is he asks, you know, how could Gloria not know this is happening in her own house? Mm -hmm. And that's a natural, like, question to ask because sometimes you're going to put your blinders up and see only what you want to see. But then it's also you're only seeing things from a 12-year-old's perspective. So things could have been more apparent and obvious because when by the time a lot of this stuff comes out, people know about it. Like mm-hmm. It's something that is kind of the, the small-town dirty secret that people have been holding on to and throwing under the rug for years. The Hayden family is powerful in the town with the sheriff's office um and the grandfather casts a really large shadow and so it does seem like that's part of it but yeah there's this huge power dynamic so i think you're probably right it might not have been the first time that she heard anything um but i did appreciate the fact that we didn't have to go through all of this i mean obviously the father, the sheriff, does an investigation, but I appreciated that Gail came out of the room and right away she was like, this is what's happening. And Marie said it and we believe what she said. So let's talk a little bit more about that brotherly relationship because as David's father investigates, his relationship with Frank changes. And we kind of get a window to that um, where there's descriptions of the welcome home ceremony from the war and where... You know, his grandfather says, I want to bring my son up here. And everybody knows he's talking about Frank instead of Wesley. And he could have gone anywhere to practice, but he decided to come back to this town. And it's apparent that Wesley takes this, you know, I don't want to say subservient, but lesser role to Frank and kind of acquiesces to his role as this, like, superior brother. Um, But then it gets to the point where... He just can't let it go anymore. And it's it's kind of like, I like the description when David is talking to Len, who's the deputy sheriff, and Len is saying, to be a law enforcement officer in Montana, you have to know when to look and when to look away. And David's dad hasn't figured that part out yet. So, but I kind of see it as different because Wesley wants to look away for a long time and then... He talks, but to, he does his job anyway, yeah. and he investigate. He does start investigating right away. And then when Frank basically confesses, is when he locks him in the basement and is saying like, "Yeah, we're gonna, he's gonna pay somehow, but we're gonna just lock him in the basement for now rather than putting him in jail to save the family's face." Which, you know, I I had. It's frustrating. Yeah. It, and, and it, it makes me mad. It makes him impossible to root for mm-hmm. because you'd want him to be this like, well, I don't want to say Atticus Finch type, but we already brought in the. Well, Tupil- yeah, let's compare him. Well, if you brought in the Tukibola Hockingbird comparison, where like you're out in the public face doing things that are not in line with how the normal is, I don't know if that's easy well, to say. But- yeah, David writes a little bit about the racism of the small town and how. Like a lot of small towns in America, the racism is buried really deep and no one would necessarily admit it to your face that they're racist, but it's, it speaks 
volumes in their actions and the way that they talk and their microaggressions and the way that they treat the Sioux people right. in the town. And the grandfather in the story is the blatant, like... Yeah, he's pretty blatantly clear about his racism. Mm-hmm. But I think Wesley wants to look the other way, but then when Frank is so, like, nonchalantly admitting to the things that he did, the conscience finally just takes over and he has to do something and places him under, like, essentially house arrest in, mm-hmm. in their own home. I think the most frustrating thing is... It got to a point in the story where it didn't seem like he... So it it went in stages where he cares about the community. He does this investigation. He finds that Frank is indeed molesting all of these girls and women. He arrests Frank, and then it moves to, well, he cares about what happens to Frank because he's his brother. Mm -hmm. So he feels like, well, I've done my service to the community. I investigated. Now I need to protect my brother, which, you know, is frustrating. We're two people with very strong senses of justice, and we really, I think, we both struggle with that sort of mentality. Well, it just makes it hard to find somebody to root for. Yeah. Um, But then it moves away from caring about Frank to, I feel like, caring about himself and his family of keeping up appearances, keeping up the family name, protecting his, Wesley's core family from the fallout of the situation. Right. Because, and we're getting into some plot discussion, which we always end up blurring the lines here, but I feel like the biggest move that we see that, where he moves from, like, protecting his brother to protecting everybody's reputations and really caring what happens, is um, David wakes up in the middle of the night to a bunch of cans shattering. I knew right away what was going to happen. Did you? Well, from that point, yeah, like, you were saying, or one of your notes was about how predictable and you knew a lot of the plot points. So I knew, or I had a, well, I won't say I had it all figured out. I knew that there was, I had a feeling there was going to be a murder and then there was going to be a suicide. Um, But I kind of was backwards on, between Marie and Frank about how I thought that was going to go. I thought Marie, after she found out, was going to potentially murder frank and then commit suicide wow i know i I was going in a really weird direction (laughs) on that one but um instead of frank murdering marie and then killing himself yeah no i i tracked it you're better at that you're better at that than i am um no the second that david says like i woke up and the cans were shattering i knew that frank was going to use the glass what i found really interesting is david goes downstairs And his parents are sitting on the couch and they know exactly what's going on downstairs. And they're just sitting there very solemn. And he's like, uh, do you hear what's going on guys? And they just sit there and they're like, yep, he just has to get it out of his system. And he is fine. Whatever. We're just going to check on him in the morning. But they're like sitting up. They totally knew that he was going to commit suicide down there. And I feel like Basically, they facilitated it for him. I don't think so. It was their out. The next morning, David's father is sitting at the kitchen table, and he's already somberly reminiscing about his boyhood with Frank, and he's telling his son David about this special story that he remembers about Frank. He's already mourning him before he goes downstairs and finds him dead. I don't think so. I I see that as more him mourning the perception that he had of his brother, and then he's going to take his brother to jail. 
that day. I think there's no way that the sheriff didn't figure out that with all of the cans shattering that he would be able to kill himself down there. I don't, yeah, I don't see it that way. I see that as more that he was just letting the anger out. And from Wesley's perspective, he was just lamenting the fact that the whole curtain over the truth in the Hayden family was going to get pulled up and the world was going to see everything for what it was because there's genuine like tears and remorse and surprise when he goes down the stairs and finds him it's not like but i think it's one thing to know it and i think it's one thing to see it yeah maybe i I think you're reaching a little bit on that one and i'm not afraid to say it don't listen to the english major i'm I'm just saying i'm not afraid to say that i think you're reaching (laughs) but okay so we got down a rabbit hole there um (laughs) Anything else that we need to touch on with the relationships? Basically, it's it's complicated, and the relationships are tense. They're fraught with sort of trying to uphold these expectations. Small town, all the eyes are on the Hayden family, and all of that really contributes to this very tense family situation. And I think that's the strength of the book, is just the tension that rises from the familial relationships and i think that's something that larry watson does well in few words to paint this really dense picture of the hayden family and that's really the only thing that we get like we don't get a lot of outside characters like we get len and it's really yeah like david has no friends that he's running around with which i thought thought was really odd i thought that was weird too I was like, you're not even going to go over to your neighbor and, like, play? Surely you must have some school friends, right? Yeah, like the only... A cousin something. And we, the only time we talk about somebody that's not in their family or working for his dad is when he goes and is in, like, a neighbor's outhouse. Yeah. Yeah, which is really weird, but... So, there, like, there were inklings that David has friends that he plays with and, like, runs around with in the summertime, but we didn't really see any of that. Granted, he's telling this very specific story, so he's leaving things out. Mm-hmm. Where it really veered, where this book really veered from To Kill a Mockingbird was To Kill a Mockingbird is very much the child narrator. And Scout looks up to Atticus and idolizes him. And that's all that we really get. We can kind of read between the lines with certain perspectives and see that Atticus is not all that he's cracked up to be. You know, with his, like, white savior complex and everything. Sure. But... Where Montana 1948 really veers from that is the story is about David seeing his father as a flawed man rather than the idol of perfection. Right. So it's more about David like becoming a man through the situation, seeing that adults are not perfect. And that's kind of when you start to grow up is when you realize that your parents are human, they're flawed human beings, that... Sometimes they do things wrong. Um, And so that's where I feel like maybe this story is even stronger than To Kill a Mockingbird in the sense of a coming-of-age story rather than just a story of childhood. Right, because Wesley and Gail never directly want to come out and tell David what's happening. It's all him eavesdropping on things that are happening for him to develop this story. So... But they kind of, like, know that he knows. Nobody really talks about it openly. It's very, like, Midwestern very, in that way. Very, mid, like, you could put this in Wisconsin, or in part of it is in Minnesota. Um, well, and Larry Watson lives in Wisconsin 
he spent time like he gets the midwest very well i feel like yeah and i think that resonated with us as midwestern kids Mm -hmm. when we're talking about plotting i didn't feel like the story got to that like intense place until about 30 pages in i had to really push myself to get to that 30 pages mark because i wasn't really here for a story of small town boyhood it's just not my thing. Well, that's kind of where I stopped the first night was at around like 25, 30 pages. And I'm like, this isn't that really interesting or yeah. compelling. And then uh, you were like, oh, you, you got to keep going. Like, yeah. That's when it gets good. So if anyone's listening to this and hasn't read it yet, you got to make it to about page 30. Are you checking? No, I'm, <laughs> oh. you're, you're right on. Yeah. Um, I was kind of uncomfortable the whole time and I think that that was purposeful because at the same time that we're getting this like family story and this drama we're also getting a story of boyhood adolescence and almost like sexual awakening in between all of this like sexual assault stuff and those two things combined made me very uncomfortable but I think that was intentional and I mean he was 12 and of course if you're listening to all of these adults talk about sexual assault I mean, sex is in there and it's going to be a topic. It's just all of that like mesh in together. I really like would like to keep those things separate in my mind. And it just made me uncomfortable that that was all like mixed in. Agreed. Does that make sense? Yeah, I hear that. And I think that would have been the difference with some of these heavier topics like the sexual assault and rape and suicide if it had been an adult versus a 12-year-old. Sure. And, like, I get that that's not the point. Like, the point is that he was 12 and basically just hitting puberty. Mm-hmm. But still, like, kind of got queasy at some points. I think that unease, like you said, is purposeful. I think so. And, I like, you feel it from the first time he talks about walking in on Marie in a shower yeah. or, like, having a sexual-ish attraction to his aunt. Yeah. 12-year-olds are gross. It's, it was icky. And then I mentioned this before that I found the book predictable but what are you gonna do i think the fact that i had a murder suicide prediction <laughs> just a little bit backwards on who it was yeah. is kind of you know i, I should get a pat on i the like back for that. i like your imagination yeah i feel like that would have been an interesting story if marie came back yeah. and murdered frank and then had well i mean i wouldn't yeah i don't know that's could you imagine this, could you imagine the small town drama that would happen like for the, a sioux woman to have murdered the town doctor right i mean not, not saying you're wrong, Larry Watson, but... Well, like I've said, though, that's not the story for him to write. Yeah. That would be someone with a Sioux background to write. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, let's talk about the writing style. So Larry Watson, his books are published by Milkweed, which is actually a publishing house out of Minneapolis, which is where we both went to college. Um, I had a few friends intern at Milkweed, and I'm rather fond of the publishing house. Um, this is exactly the kind of fiction that I expect from them, is sort of that Midwestern focus. Um, I liked his writing style. Very much so. Like, for literary fiction, was this something that I'm not normally attracted to? I think um, you're getting there more and more, though. Yeah, you can say that. But, <laughs> um, but I, I, I like the way that he used a little bit of flashbacks, short and easy to understand prose. And I agree with you in this note that you have about the parentheticals where and kind of the, the wink-wink to the audience 
Yeah. You want, do you call that fourth wall breaks in books? No, but that's what the parentheticals are, is sort of like, here's the story, but then here's the extra information that I'm adding that I think you should know. It's just separate from what's happening in this scene. And that all worked for me. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like that a lot. So I would read more Larry Watson. Like, I know we're jumping ahead, but um, I wouldn't read a book this size. I think most of his books are this size. I actually almost got his book American Boy in the airport because I was in the Minneapolis airport and I was like to get a local book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about similar Hmm. what do you have against short books oh i'm not really talking about length i'm talking about like the shape of this book oh i like it because it's like nice and small can fit it in a purse <laughs> <laughs> but like you know how a, a, a like a mass market paperback would be shorter this way sure, you, can hold, you, sure. Can, you can't really hold this with, it's awkward to hold with one hand i digress okay well you have tall person hands so. <laughs> um yeah i also really liked um, you had to read between the lines quite a bit. I mean, and I think that's just part of the Midwestern culture is that not everything is on the surface. A lot of things are buried beneath layers of, you know, wanting to be polite or not drag some stuff out. Um, so it's not everything is as it seems always in Midwestern life. Very passive aggressive. Or passive aggressive. As Knox and JB <laughs> of the podcast would say. Um... <laughs> Yeah, you haven't seen Passy Aggressi until you've been in the Midwest. Oh, oh sorry. It's not really <laughs> Passy Aggressi, but... <laughs> no, it's just politeness. But this is very common in, like, stories about the Midwest and in small towns where people will keep things under wraps because they want to have that ideal image projected themselves. I mean, I think themselves. people would say that's the same for small towns in the South. It's just people go about it a different way. Yep. Which I think is just where this really lends itself to comparisons to To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, So I just wanted to touch on some of the significant themes in this book. I thought that for what it's worth, Larry Watson, as a white person, I don't get to necessarily judge this, but the way that he wrote about the racism and bigotry of the small town, I thought, from my point of view, he did a pretty good job of highlighting it and showing it. Like we said before, it's preferable to have stories like this from the actual communities that are discriminated against. So preferable to me, like if you held up Montana 1948 and you held up a book by a Sioux woman who actually underwent abuse, like I would pick the book by the Sioux woman every time. But for what it's worth, I thought that this book did a good job of introducing that theme. I would say that that's accurate coming-of-age story, I think it's a really good coming-of-age story. Maybe uncomfortable in that (laughs) realm, Um, but I do think that you see a definite character arc with David. I appreciated the epilogue because it really shows us how this has impacted him into adulthood. Right. So I I liked the prologue where we see him begin the retrospection, and then the epilogue where we... the conclusion we see how this has affected him throughout his life. Um, so those is two bookends <laughs> to the story um, were very effective. And I'm interested to see if uh, that's a component of his other stories. I 
appreciated the sort of tension, the family secrets thing, the relationships between the family. I liked that it was like a tight focus on them. And I do really like books like this where you could see it on the stage as sort of this dark, moody, tense, full of dialogue, things are happening off stage that they're talking about kind of thing. I liked that. It's very theatrical to me. As soon as you said play, I immediately can see it. So Mm -hmm. maybe this deserves an adaptation. Um, The theme that I think I struggled with the most, but it obviously Larry Watson did a good job if I am struggling and thinking about it still, was the ethics. Sort of like morality versus loyalty and how family loyalty can outweigh ethics in these situations well now um, we're well now we're getting into the meat of the story where like you and i both have our innate sense of right and wrong and how we were raised and things that we're willing to accept and putting ourselves in this position there's just no way that we would have let that go but it's interesting to see kind of the struggles with wesley and gail and the kind of flip back and forth where gail immediately wants to expose frank and put him in jail and do all these things and frank's kind of or uh, and wesley's kind of resistant then it gets to the point where wesley has reached his ethical limit and she has kind of been exhausted and wants the whole thing just to go away so that dynamic is another one of the relationships that i really liked was the shifting ethical boundaries between wesley and gail and kind of the willingness to what they're willing to accept I think another thing that's just really important to highlight is this book. It's in the title. It's Montana 1948. So this whole story is the summer of 1948. But it felt so timely. And I feel like aside from maybe the fact that they didn't have cell phones, (laughs) all of this could so easily be set in 2019. Um, You might think that I'm stupid, but my first note was... Uh, Vietnam aftermath. Oh, really? Because yeah. it sounded more like that to you? Well, so, well, and also when I was first reading it, I wasn't really paying attention. Sure. So it says 1940. You've had a long week, to be fair. Yeah. I'm working like 12-hour days, folks. It's, it's, not, <laughs> it's not a big deal. But um, it's it literally says like 1948, three or sentences before this highlight that I made, um, <laughs> where they're talking about how the men of Mercer County spent the preceding years in combat, not his dad. He was 4F. Um, which was the designation for you can't get drafted. And then the relationship and dynamics for when the men came back from war and they wanted to go to their farms and live quietly with their families. And that relationship of somebody who didn't serve vis-a-vis somebody who did. So literally my first note was Vietnam aftermath similarities later on. <laughs> you, can, like, you can see where I stenciled that in later. But it's, tr- it's true where like this is, I feel like it's a dynamic that exists after every major war where you have this group of people that served and are coming home and wanting things to be a certain way and the people that stayed behind and didn't have that shared experience and then the you know whether it's guilt or um jealousy and how that plays out as far as relationships go because i think that's something that's in the back of wesley's mind is you know my brother went to war i stayed home not out of my own choice, but because of my health, but that's still something that I have to struggle with and deal with. I think that that aspect, you're right, like it could take place in any time period, but I was also just thinking about the 
relationship with this community and the Native Americans who were close by the sexual assault and that all of that situation could so easily and does take place today. I mean, it's an unfortunate, timeless story where the powerful will find the powerless and prey upon them if they're predatory. Well, and I just want to highlight some statistics. I would be remiss if I didn't, that um, Native American women in our country, and um, I believe this statistic also applies to Canada, so North America at large, are about 2.5 times more likely to suffer abuse and sexual assault than any other population. That is enormous. There are some absolutely heartbreaking, frustrating statistics out there about this. And it's an example of an extremely vulnerable population being taken advantage of. So that's part of, like, I really like this book, but my main complaint is, like, I need it from Marie's perspective because it's happening today and it's terrifying. So um, I will link to some resources for that in the show notes, but there are quite a few activists in, I believe, Seattle, Washington, that have done some studies on this. And that's where a lot of the statistics are coming from and a lot of the stories. So this is a great book to read to sort of introduce this topic, but it should not stop here. And that's where it really gets the comparison for To Kill a Mockingbird for me. So many people read To Kill a Mockingbird in school, and that is the example of civil rights literature that they get. It is not a civil rights text. If you stop at To Kill a Mockingbird, you are not getting the whole story. If you stop at Montana 1948, you're not getting the whole story. So it's just that parallel of, like, there's so much more than what this white narrator is sharing. And it's really important to listen to the Native American populations, to women, to the people who are really impacted by this story. So I just, I I wouldn't be able to post this podcast without sharing that. And I'll have more links for people in the show notes. Do you have any other recommendations or something where people who feel like you do and want to explore more Native voices in that arena? Yes. Glad you asked. Of course I do. I'm the the, the master segue. (laughs) So uh, Louise Erdrich is certainly one of the most popular Native American authors that we have. I mean, she's incredible. Um, And I feel like a lot of her stories will actually sort of follow a similar pattern with Montana 1948, where it's about families grappling with trauma. There's a tr- like really traumatic, inciting incident. Sometimes it's crime. It's about boyhood and parenting and sort of like those family relationships. So two books that I can recommend by her are The Roundhouse and La Rose, and they'll have a lot of those same themes. It's just coming from her perspective. I believe she's in the Anishinaabe Nation, um, which is part of the Chippewa tribe. So not a Sioux woman, but um, you'll get a lot of the um, this, a lot of the same themes from her writing. And then another author that's published by Milkweed, and Milkweed does a really good job of publishing indigenous peoples and their poetry and their fiction. So check out Milkweed in general. But another author published by Milkweed 
is um, Richard Wagamese. And he wrote Indian Horse, which is about Saul Indian Horse. And Saul is a child when his family moves deep into the woods to avoid child kidnappers. And then tragedy strikes and he finds himself at a violent boarding school. His only salvation is ice hockey and he rises in the ranks as an athlete, ends up being a professional. But as he rises, so does the racism and the harshness of a world that will not accept him. And Milkweed says that there is spare prose in this book, which made me think, okay, like if you like Montana 1948 and you like that style, you're going to like this. And it's a Native American author writing a coming of age story about his experience, Um, but it's fiction. So um, I think those are great places to start. As always, I will provide a bunch more recommendations over on Patreon, and I'm going to link some of the articles from the Indian Law Resource Center and from the National Congress of American Indians in the show notes so that people can read about those statistics I was talking about. Okay. I don't have any other golden nuggets about Montana 1948, do you? No, I think we've said all we need to say. I think we can close the book. It's covered. We're good. Okay, let's move on to something um, a little bit lighter. Recommendations of the week. Well, I don't think lighter is really the... Oh, yeah, (laughs) not your rec. (laughs) Definitely not my rec. Um, So we enjoyed... Mind Hunter season one, which is about um, kind of the behavioral science unit in the FBI and how it originated interviewing serial killers and developing this kind of way to interview and get information out of them. So not light topics to say the least, but season two just dropped. We watched the first episode last night, picks up right where it left off. Um, I feel like Jonathan Groff does a great job of bringing this character to life and showing this fascination that he has for serial killers and what makes them tick. And it's based on a book. So if you are sort of the sensitive type that you can't see these things on screen, but you can read about them, go ahead and pick up the book. I think it's called Mindhunter. I think it is too. But we'll put it in the show notes. Well, my recommendation is definitely late. I'm super late to the game on this one. I feel like it's kind of like Schitt's Creek where I heard so many people talk about it, but I've just been resisting watching it. This is actually one of my mom's favorite shows. So finally, I was like, okay, if Barb likes it, I'll probably like it too. Um, Barb getting another shout out on the podcast. (laughs) She'll love it. So happy. I started watching Grace and Frankie on Netflix and it's absolutely delightful and hilarious. And I think you would like the show, but since like we said, you've been working a lot lately and I've just had some evening time at home by myself, I wanted a show that I could just watch. And you can have pure fun. You can have shows by yourself that are of course. But they're like I feel like Right now, we just have a lot of shows that we're watching together. Yeah. And I just needed something fresh to the rotation that I could watch on my own. And Grace and Frankie is perfect for that. It's a lot of fun. Well, I also have a different relationship with June Diane Raphael, who's on that show, because she's on one of my favorite podcasts, which is how did this get made with her and her husband, Paul Shear and Jason Manzoukas. So I don't really want to ruin that June by watching a fictional portrayal, is what I'll say. I mean, I've listened to that podcast, and I don't think you'd be disappointed. (laughs) True. Um, All right. So don't forget, everyone, that we have something special planned for the fall. So for our next buddy read, we're actually reading The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas, which is like, what, 2,000 pages or something crazy like that? And I also think it's Dumas. 
Dumas. Dumas. Isn't that what I said? Dumas. Isn't that what I said? It's it's French, whatever. You gotta put some French on it. <laughs> so because that book is so long, we're spreading it out and giving ourselves until the end of November to read it. So it will be our November discussion. But we recorded our September and October buddy read discussions um, over the summer. So you'll still get some fresh podcast episodes from us. So Recursion by Blake Crouch is our September buddy read episode. And then Bad Blood by John Carreyrou is our October episode. So if you haven't read Recursion by Blake Crouch yet, pick it up and then listen to our discussion at the end of September. Make sure that you're following us on Instagram for buddy read news and other announcements at HeRedSheRed. And you can connect with us via email, HeRedSheRedPodcast at gmail.com. Or you can sign on as a patron to get all of our bonus content at patreon.com slash HeRedSheRed. Thank you all so much for listening. And remember, the couple that reads together. Try something different every once in a while. Thanks, Anne. (laughs) Maybe she did know what she was doing. She usually does.